0: I think homework's an interesting area. Research has actually shown that parents who do the homework with their child, over time, those children tend to perform worse, which I thought was quite surprising when I first came across that. Having high parental attitudes towards education and high expectations around that our child can do well in education is massively important because it does get to the heart of creating that culture of this is what we do in our household. Uh, I'm going to support you, and I, but I know you can do it. For any of your listeners who have uh, children at primary school age, the research around the impact that homework has on primary school students, it's not as much impact as people tend to think. The impact tends to be a lot more at secondary school. They generally say, is as long as your child's reading a lot. A lot of the learning should be happening in the classroom during the day and the idea that homework should probably at most reinforce that learning as opposed to it being new stuff because that's where misconceptions tend to take place.
1: Welcome to the Lessons Outside the Classroom podcast. I'm your host John Anno and this is the place where I interview experts and professionals about a range of topics relating to the development and growth of children. You'll also get practical tips and advice you can implement. If you have any specific topics you'd like covered, please email on lessonsoutside at gmail.com. My guest today is Bradley Bush, a psychologist. Together with his co-author, Bradley has collaborated on a book, The Science of Learning, 77 Studies That Every Parent Should Know. These studies that delve into the mysteries of children's brains, and ultimately, are there to guide you and how you can be a better parent. Bradley, welcome, welcome to the show, and thank you for being a guest. Cheers. Well, thanks for the invite and having me. Um, I guess my my first question is: is you know, what compelled you to to create a book like this? Uh, and I guess why why are these studies or why would these studies be relevant for for parents?
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I guess the uh, kind of my driving force for the book was um, I'm a parent myself. I am constantly surprised by how I'm still tired as a parent, like how hard it is uh to parent a child. Uh, and I guess I mainly just got bored of guessing uh what I was meant to do. Like I think you can learn a bit from your parents and you can learn a bit from trial and error and like naturally pick stuff up. But I just kind of I just want I didn't want necessarily answers, but I just wanted guidelines. And I think in my sleep-deprived State juggling work and child and and various other things. I think it just it's just nice to have some evidence that we can use as a foundation. And yet, when I looked at a lot of the research, there's some brilliant research out there, and hopefully we can kind of get into some of the studies. But uh, I just found that a lot of the research is behind paywalls, uh, so it's quite hard to access. A lot of it's written for other psychologists; it's not written for busy parents. Uh, And so, just wanted to say that was accessible that was evidence-based I think a lot of parenting or self-help books tend to be on to the side of being a bit cheesy uh and just want to say that was just a bit factual but accessible and, and just relevant to the day-to-day parenting challenges of helping support our children really brilliant uh, and I guess for, for those who
1: haven't read the book can you just sort of maybe give an overview in terms of how it's structured because one of the things uh, that was really clear to me is how given that it's about research which can be a little bit dry how easy it is to navigate.
0: So my co-author Edward and I uh we identified these 77 studies that make up the science of learning and we put into a parents guide. And we had these 77 studies. And if I'm honest, I wanted to write a PhD thesis going into detail and nuance and caveats and real depth of it. Uh, and Edward, he wanted to write a comic book because uh, he doesn't really like reading and he says he's too busy to read. So we kind of merged the two. Uh, So each study takes up a two-page spread. The first page are the general findings from that particular study. Uh, And then the second page, accompanied with graphics, are either related research or parenting implications. And we wanted to cover a really broad range. So some of the studies are about memory and learning and revision and study skills. Uh, Some of them are on motivation and resilience. Uh, We have some on sleep, on mobile phones, on perfectionism, fear failure, and then also on parental behaviours. And what are the things that evidence suggests are quite time effective for parents to do that can make an impact and which stuff actually tends not to make as much impact as perhaps we'd have thought we could probably do a bit less of it. Uh, and that was kind of our idea of we didn't want a book that was cover to cover. We wanted a book that you can dip in and out of. Edward always refers to it as his favourite toilet book uh, in the sense, you know, you can just pick it up when you're on the toilet, read a couple of pages and put it down. It doesn't have to be a, a whole reading session. And yeah, and that's what we kind of wanted it to be a way of dipping your toe into the water in the world of research, really. Right. Um, I guess I couldn't I work in marketing,
1: and obviously, we, oftentimes with research, you can read it in many different ways. So, how much weight should we put on on the different studies that that you've put in the in the book? Are are some more, I guess, reliable than others in terms of the amount of people that are researched? Um, it'd be interesting to get your your view on that.
0: Yeah, it's a real interesting one because psychology is probably slightly different to some of the other sciences in terms of it's I think it's a bit messier uh, to work out fact and truth and evidence uh, if you like the way I kind of see it is without research if you don't have any research you're just guessing and you're probably heavily influenced by your own biases that we all have that shape our narrative of the world and of what works so I think that's the first thing to say is that you fundamentally do need something to hang your hat on and go I believe that people have spent time and effort researching this, controlling for other factors they know, they're confident in saying what they think works and doesn't work. So I think you do need some evidence research. And But that being said, probably quite counterintuitively, given I wrote a book called The Science of Learning, I think the science behind it is somewhat limited as well, in the sense of this stuff is never meant to replace parental judgment. I think it's meant to inform it. No one study provides a definitive answer because they're not done on your particular child in your particular context. And we know children do respond differently. So we can talk in terms of general, if I have a hundred students in front of me, I'll be able to say on average, what would work best for those hundred, but you do have individual differences within those hundred. So I wouldn't want anyone thinking that we wrote this as a way of saying this is gospel and this is fact. I think one study by itself should be taken with a pinch of salt, but taken as a collection, can provide us with a bit more reliability and validity and give us just a bit of direction as parents of what might be a good idea to try.
1: Brilliant. So if I'm understood correctly, in terms of I guess, how parents should use this book, is it more of a, a guide? So you take the, the findings, you, you take your child, and I guess potentially even some trial and error.
0: Right. So maybe you would have if I give like a practical example from one of the studies. One of my favourite studies looks at if students should revise and do the homework whilst listening to music. Because we know anecdotally that's the thing a lot of students say they do. Uh, When we go to schools, we hear about 70 or 80% of students say they do homework or revision to music. And so researchers have tested this and done in quite good uh, control trials. And they found quite consistently that music that has lyrics, for example, students who revise while listening to music that has lyrics, they tend to remember a lot less than students who revise whilst listening uh, whilst revising in silence like it's quite a stark difference uh, between the two so if someone asked me should my child listen to music when they rise? i'd say chances are no they probably shouldn't uh, because we know that from, from that finding however there have been subsequent studies that shown the type of task makes a difference the personality of the child makes a difference. So extroverts react quite differently to revising to music than introverts. And I don't know enough about your particular child to be able to make that judgment call of if your specific child should. So you do need some trial and error, you do need some discussion. The problem with abandoning the research and just going, I know what works best for my child, or my child knows what, they, what works best for them, is people often do what they prefer, not what's best for them. So I was kind of half-joke when I talk about this. So, like, my toddler prefers chocolate buttons for breakfast, but I know that's not what's best for him. And so to give the equivalent with, like, revision, if you say, like, I prefer revising whilst listening to music, you might prefer that, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's best for you. And that's where it gets quite complicated, because our biases are, it's really hard to differentiate what we like as opposed to what's best for us. And that's where you're going to have to make that judgment call. I don't think research can tell you, 100 but i think it can help guide yeah there's no, some really good points there and um, you spoke earlier about
1: some of the research around actions that parents could take
0: yeah
1: um I, I strongly believe you know obviously we're about kids and you know trying to give our our kids the the best help and i think actually empowering parents is quite a big thing could you speak to obviously not all but maybe some of the the key studies in relation to actions that parents can take and kind of how that can impact on on children?
0: There are so many. uh, There's some really interesting ones out there. I'll go for the most obvious and probably boring one, but I think it probably makes the biggest impact uh, and shouldn't be underestimated. There's some really nice research about the impact that how much sleep your child gets has a huge impact on their, not only how much they learn the next day, but also their well-being, their ability to regulate their emotions. And yeah, a lot of the research shows that parents tend to overestimate how much sleep their child gets. Uh, so they're unaware of actually how little sleep their child gets and the negative impact that can have. And so then you kind of look into what stops people getting good night's sleep. And often it's for students having electronics and mobile phones in their room. Uh, and we know there's a quite a strong association with how much easier you use your phone in the two hours before bed and how much quality and quantity of sleep you get. So I think parents, if you look for a really easy win, if you just help your kid get a good night's sleep and have quite firm routines around bedtime, that is sounds so obvious and common sense. But yeah, it's amazing how the day-to-day battles where we get chipped away with our child and we end up just kind of going a bit more with the flow because we all want and sometimes need an easy life, uh, especially at nighttime. Uh, that's quite a big one. Another area that I think uh, is really good for parents, um, I think homework's an interesting area. Research has actually shown that parents who do the homework with their child, over time those children tend to perform worse, which I thought was quite surprising when I first came across that. So I think there's two things at play here: is One, uh, the child becomes somewhat reliant on the parent doing the The heavy lifting, doing the hard work. If they know if I give up quickly, mum and dad will help probably give me the answer or help push me through. And that's problematic because eventually the child needs to learn more uh, than what we know on these subjects, probably. So it becomes quite limiting. And I think the other reason why uh, that tends to be the case is there's a lot to be said for resilience and intrinsic motivation. And if we create a setup where we're always the one pushing our child up the hill, if you were, uh, and they know that, they will naturally probably start doing a bit less. Now, that's not to say that parents can't have a, and should have, they absolutely should have a huge role in terms of homework. The evidence suggests that parents who have clear homework guidelines, clear homework routines set up for their child, who help their child find a quiet space um, to do their homework, that really helps. Um, students so it's not to say that we abandon them and go go on and just make sure you get your homework done but we shouldn't be the ones essentially spoon feeding them along the way to do that homework
1: so essentially creating the right environment to learn is what, what parents should be doing
0: oh absolutely and in fact one of the other studies that we detail in the book actually showed that having high parental attitudes towards education and high expectations around that our child can do well in education is massively important because it does get to the heart of creating that culture of this is what we do in our household. I'm going to support you, but I know you can do it as opposed to me doing it to you, as it were.
1: That's that's brilliant. Um, my wife is going to be extremely pleased with, uh, with a lot of things here.
0: <laughs> oh, and if you want a real extra nugget for any of your listeners who have uh, children at primary school age... The research around the impact that homework has on primary school students, it's not as much impact as people tend to think. The impact tends to be a lot more at secondary school. They generally say is as long as your child's reading a lot, a lot of the learning should be happening in the classroom during the day. And the idea that homework should probably at most reinforce that learning as opposed to it being new stuff, because that's where misconceptions tend to take place. And yeah, as quite aspirational parents and my speaking for myself here an aspirational typical middle class parent the perception is that you want your school setting your child like you're stretching your child and you absolutely do but most of that benefit comes in the classroom actually at primary school not at not in their homework Uh, so sometimes less is more well I've got to say that particular
1: piece really um surprises me Right, if if I'm honest I'll of the one where you know, they do their stuff at, at school. They come back, and you know, I want to sort of do some, some extra work to kind of supplement and, and kind of help them get get ahead. So, yeah, really surprising, actually.
0: Yeah, and yeah. I and I, I, and I, I'm not, I wouldn't say like it doesn't that hinder, but like uh, it definitely doesn't make as much benefit as one would typically expect. There's loads of stuff like this in education uh, that, as parents, we think must make a big impact. That actually makes it makes some, but less than we'd imagine. Another classic one. Is classroom sizes. As a parent, when you look around your child's school, one of the when you choose a school, one of the questions is always what's the ratio of teachers to students and uh, class sizes? And they actually found like if there's 28 in the class or if there's 25, like that probably makes almost next to no real difference. Because what makes a difference is the quality of the teaching. If you have a bad teacher and they're teaching 25 or 28, that's gonna make more of the impact than just the numbers that does change if you dramatically decrease the numbers. So like if there's 15 compared to 30, that might be a factor, but the stuff that often gets the most coverage of classroom sizes and amount of homework often less than we might think the impact. Interesting.
1: Are there, I mean, I'm finding this line uh, really interesting. Are there any other, um, I guess, misconceptions that, that come to mind and said so that looking at the book, there are so many, I mean, it's, it's like a treasure trove. <laughs> yeah. Um, of, of research, are there any other uh, research findings that kind of debunk any any commonly um, held myths?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, can I get my apologies in first before I say some of them because some of these beliefs that people have are very it seems deep rooted, and it's really hard um, to hear that some of these are, are in fact myths when you look at the evidence. My favourite one, I don't know, are you familiar with like learning styles? say so, not overly, but okay. so, so this was really popular in schools about a decade ago and it's still very prevalent. this whole sort of myth that your child is either a visual learner or an auditory learner or like a kinesthetic learner and therefore if I match how I teach to their learning style um, then that way you shouldn't be able to learn more because it's matched your preference. And typically what this gets interpreted as is, Boys who get easily distracted and fidgety, maybe we need to get them moving as part of the of the learning. Now, that's not to say that exercise doesn't play a huge role in our well-being, in our development, and our ability to learn. But like trying to teach, trying to match that to the actual content that you're teaching at the time tends to actually not only does it have almost no impact, in some studies it actually has a negative impact because what you then do is you get some students, often it is the struggling boys, you then go. I can't learn this because I'm a kinesthetic learner or I'm a, I'm a visual learner. And they kind of box themselves off. And you have this great excuse about why you don't therefore need to try. And it comes from a good place of we are all different and we do all have preferences. But then this is kind of taken to the end degree so that we then need to adapt absolutely everything to match those differences. Whereas actually, you and I are much more similar than we are different. And yeah, there might be some differences around the edges. But the vast majority is we do know some learning strategies work better than others, regardless of our different personality or or different preferences. That's brilliant. Again, I've
1: seen the one which is about parental
0: beliefs. Can you talk, talk to that? Yeah, uh, I mean, so there's a, there's a, there's a few different ones on, on parental beliefs. One of the ones, I don't know if this is one you're referring to, so correct me if, if if it's not, but one I find really interesting around parental beliefs, especially as I'm just about to have my second child, is, do, is how parents subconsciously treat their sons and their daughters differently. And I find that really interesting. So this starts from an incredibly young age. So they even did studies with... Um, toddlers uh, sorry not toddlers young babies Uh, and they got the babies to crawl up a ramp and the parents had to estimate how steep a ramp can my newborn baby or my young baby crawl up successfully Uh, and they found regardless of ability the parents of sons they predicted their sons could do the steeper ramp than parents of, of, of daughters even if their ability was like the same and we see similar findings of if you ask parents um, questionnaires of how hard does your child have to work in order to do well at maths, we do see this gender difference. Even once you average out difference of ability, there's, there's still this assumption of say like girls would have to work much harder in maths and science uh, subjects, for example. And yet, and we see 16 years later, when you look at GCSE and A-level choices, we, we do see massive gender differences in terms of which students do what subjects, but that's not based on actual ability most of the time. It's based on this societal preconceived notions that's so subtle that most people aren't even aware that they're doing it. The other study that I think links nicely with that is they found how parents, without knowing it, praise their sons and daughters differently. So sons are much more likely praised for what we talk about as uh, the process So your behaviours, how hard you tried, um, did you take a risk? Did you react well to a setback? You know, such an adventurous boy, uh, he's fearless, like that kind of stuff. And they found parents of daughters are much more likely to praise their daughters for the outcome uh, if they were successful. And again, you can see how this kind of links into if you only get praised for being successful, that fear of failure and perfectionism can help develop in some students where if we're praised for our behaviors and our attitudes uh and it's not directly linked to the outcome over time those behaviors tend to make people feel more confident more resilient and so you do see these differences on a very subtle but very powerful level that most people aren't even aware that they're doing well if you said this has got massive implications just to say on
1: the on a societal level a cultural level as well because you see later in life quite and to, to your point in terms of later in college university people taking the the sciences you know chemistry maths boys versus girls you've got the four-year-old yeah right probably a hard question this um which of these studies have you found most i guess there are probably a few but which have you found or which ones have you found most effective um in
0: dealing with your with your life yeah. with your with your, your <laughs> well I probably should say to start with uh, so my wife she's a child psychologist and my go-to parenting technique is just to copy what she does because uh, like she's a wizard at this sort of stuff but I think the one that we talk about the most is one of the studies looks at um, the power of expectations and I think and it shows that so the general finding is that if you have high expectations people tend to perform better With these high expectations like the slightly cheesy phrase that gets used all the time is no one rises to low expectations and because as most parents obviously do because i love my kid it's really sometimes hard to see him struggle or see him upset and the temptation is to come in and swoop and to fix things and so then as a consequence of that next time it's easy to lower expectations of what they're capable of because i don't want to see them distressed in the future and yet i think it is amazing of what how many times our kids surprise us in terms of what they're capable of and so the one study that is interesting on resilience find found that to help develop resilience students, you do need these high expectations but it also needs to be accompanied with high levels of support and what that often means is i believe let's take something really basic we're currently teaching our kid and he's getting there pretty much now to put on his own shoes each day, because it just makes our lives easier if we're not having to do it always for him. So it starts with this high expectation that he can do it, which a few months ago, I didn't think he could, but he probably could have had the ability then. But then it also has to be accompanied with the support of showing him how to do it and scaffolding that support and modeling what does it look like and what do you do first and what do you do next? And to the outside world, when they just see the outcome, so they just see the result of like, oh, he's really good at putting on his shoes it looks like it's natural ability or he can just do that really well because you don't see all the work that goes in behind. And I think that work only happens if you have those high expectations and if you do very clearly model each of those steps along the way. Brilliant. So,
1: like, this book is absolutely fascinating. I literally could be here for, for another,
0: <laughs> another hour. Oh, Thank you. That's kind of exciting.
1: <laughs> One of the things that i, I like to do um, and I think you've given quite a few already actually um at the at the end of each of the podcasts is um give three i guess key outtakes um so I guess with what you've done in terms of the research you've done what key not necessarily about specific research points what what piece of advice what three pieces of advice would you give to to parents to guardians of of kids? Um, yep. based on you know based on your on your studies.
0: So I guess the first one uh, and I' don't know, I hope it's not controversial because like it shouldn't be but we live in an interesting age is I've learned from reading the research that there's so much that I can get in the way of a child's learning and development that it's really hard for them to make these good decisions themselves because their brains are still developing. So sometimes we have to make these decisions for them and so I guess my first area is like we're not there to be their friend. Like, it's not about popularity. We're there to sometimes make the right decisions, not the popular decisions. And so to give one such example, I alluded to earlier, there is so much research about the cost that mobile phones have on students learning whilst they're doing their homework, on their well-being, on their ability to sleep. And like we always kind of say, Edward's big on this as well, is it's actually not their phone. As a parent, it's actually our phone. Like I pay for it, and I've just loaned it to my child, essentially, and not being afraid to go like, no, the phone doesn't sleep in your room with next to you, or no, you only get to be on your phone for one hour, two hours, whatever the number is after you've done your homework. But like having those clear boundaries, it's amazing how much it feels like a hobble that we're being a dictator. Students do far better under structure and guidelines especially if they know the rationale behind it. So I think that's probably the first area is not being afraid to make those hard decisions. And the question is, if your kid's going to have a meltdown at 12 because you take their phone away, we'd rather have have that meltdown at 12 or we'd rather have them meltdown at 16 the night before or the month before their exams. And there's a real consequence there. So I think that's probably the first area. The second one would be Uh, Someone once told me uh, in terms of, I think, praise is a really interesting one. Uh, They said um, praise is like penicillin. Uh, You should use it sparingly and selectively. Uh, If you do too much, like in the late 80s, there was this big drive. It was called like the self-esteem movement. There was this big drive to just like lavish praise on people to build, make them feel good and secure and confident. And yet we know when we give too much praise, it either seems patronizing or uh, children equate it to lowering expectations sort of like, God is praising me for doing the most basic of things. Is this what counts as me working hard? Like so I get getting praise for quite basic things now. And so I think praise should be used sparingly, you know, like any asset. If you flood the market, it cheapens the value of it. Uh, and it should be used selectively. And a big part of that, I think, is praising the behaviours and the process. It's amazing. And I don't know if you've had it with yours the go-to praise that everyone goes for, if your child gets 10 out of 10 on a spelling test, everyone's like, you got 10 out of 10, you're such a smart boy, you're such a clever girl, well done. It's almost like the go-to praise is to praise someone's intelligence. And yet, what got them 10 out of 10 probably isn't their IQ. What got them 10 out of 10 was probably the hard work, the focus, the reflecting on where they went wrong last time. And that's not intelligence, that's behaviours. Uh, so praise the behaviours Because over time, the behaviors lead to those outcomes. Whereas if you just praise the outcome, it doesn't provide a template for them to follow next time. So I think phones and praise are the main two. Uh, And I guess the third one, this might be more relevant to slightly, as students get, as your children get older, is know what works in terms of learning. So it turns out, as we mentioned music earlier, generally speaking, the most popular learning strategies tend to be the least effective. So the evidence behind highlighting key passages, so you remember them, uh, shows almost minimal impact on student learning. Uh, simply rereading your notes over and over again, which is how I used to revise when I was uh, saying, for exams, just get my notes and just read it and read it and read it and read it and read it. And, read it. and yet they've actually found stuff like quizzing, so having to generate an answer to a question. Uh, if any of your listeners want to read more about it, the technical term worth Googling, is called retrieval practice which is if you generate an answer to a question, you're more likely to remember that information. So what that actually means is quizzing doesn't actually just assess how much you've learned. Quizzing actually accelerates your learning, which is great as a parent because I don't need to know all the answers. I can just read the flashcards and get you to come up with the answers. And like, you've already written the answers down for me, which is a great barrier removed as a parent. So why I don't know enough about physics, maths and verbs or whatever the students are studying, but I can prompt you by asking questions and I think knowing that that is a real driver and accelerator for learning makes a tangible difference in the lives of children Uh, and what's interesting is a lot of the stuff is actually really basic, like people sometimes are disappointed by people spending loads of money on iPads and like want the latest fancy way to accelerate their kids learning but like You sleep well, you eat breakfast, you know how what learning works, and you don't spend ages on your phone. You're ahead of 90% of the curve already before you've even started. But sometimes they don't sound glamorous or sexy as as answers.
1: Mm. That's fantastic. Thank you. um, Thank you very much. (laughs) Um, Look, we're coming to the end end now. It's (laughs) a great, great session. Um, For anyone that wants to find out more um, about the book, about... Anything else you're doing? What what can they do? Where can they go?
0: Sure, thanks. Uh, So the book's called uh, A Parent's Guide to the Science of Learning. Uh, It's available on Amazon. Makes a fantastic Christmas present, uh, I'd say. Um, Our website's innerdrive.co.uk. We have a resources tab that have about 100 or 150 completely free to download resources on a whole range of topics, some of which we've spoken about here, that are just good conversation starters to use around... The dining room table and chat talk your kids about. Uh, so that's at in the drive.co.uk And yeah, the book, Parents Guide to Science and Learning, is available on Amazon. Bradley, thank you very much. Absolute it's pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: I hope you enjoyed listening to that episode. You can subscribe for free to get notifications whenever a new episode is released. And remember, reviews are always welcome as it helps new listeners find me.